Luke 9, verses 28 to 36. The Transfiguration. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tim. We're continuing this sermon series in Luke, um, but before we continue, why don't we pray together? Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, thank you so much for your word. And I pray just as those disciples woke up and saw your glory tonight, Lord, you'd wake us up, you'd speak to us, and we'd see you tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, I had the pleasure this summer of going to a couple of Christian festivals. Uh, I went to Focus, and I also went to something called David's Tent, which is the first time I've been to David's Tent. And going to David's Tent, which is a big um, four days of worship in a field in a big top, reminded me of being a teenager and going to something called Soul Survivor. I used to love going to Soul Survivor. I went from the age of 12 to the age of 21, and it was basically my happiest time of the whole year because I'd go and hang out with my best friends, we'd worship Jesus, I'd go skateboarding and fancy girls, and that was kind of how the week went. I think I had my priorities in the right order as well. And um, yeah, I used to love the worship especially. I used to love singing songs to God, I still do. I think God did a real work in me there. I learned about God, I encountered him. Um, and I just have some really special memories, as I say, of, of worship. And one of the songs that we used to sing at Soul Survivor was actually quite an old song, but it came back to me recently. And it's a song called, Isn't He? And it's written by uh, Vineyard. And I've got the lyrics for you here. Let me just read them to you. Isn't he beautiful? Beautiful isn't he? Prince of peace, son of God, isn't he? Now, the nice thing to know about this song is this is one of those old school ones that Rory, we should totally bring back, Rory, where the men sing and then the women sing. Lovely. I mean, I would sing it for you now, but the staff will make fun of me because they always do when I sing, so I'm not going to. But the men would sing beautiful and then the women sing beautiful and then the men sing isn't he and the women sing isn't he. Prince of Peace, Son of God. But of course, being the mature group of teenagers that we were, we had a bit of a problem with this song. Megan, if we can just have the lyrics to that song back up. Can you see, this is exactly how it was typed up. 
can you see that there are question marks at the end of the lines? Now, grammatically, that's probably correct because they are questions. The problem we had is in our friendship group, what we'd always do is start talking to each other with the questions. So instead of singing, because this song would often come at quite sort of intimate times of worship. We've had the larger songs, we've praised, we've danced, and then maybe towards the end, we just sing, isn't he beautiful? But what we would go is, isn't he beautiful? Beautiful, literally talking to each other, distracting one another from the Lord. Beautiful, isn't he? Prince of Peace, Son of God, isn't he? Isn't he? Isn't he? No, obviously, I'm much too holy to have taken part in that. I was also lost in wonder, love and praise. Uh, but I used to really, really like that song. And actually, I've come to like it recently. Just, it's a way of saying together, almost encouraging one another to look upon God. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he good? Isn't he? Isn't he beautiful? And if you like, our passage tonight is a chance to do the same thing. A bit like the lyrics to this song, the passage that we're going to go through together invites us to look upon Jesus Christ. It invites us to look upon him in his glory, in his majesty, in his beauty. Now, this is um, a prayer meeting, if you like, this moment in Luke's gospel. Let's just look at verse 28 again, shall we? It's gonna come up on the screen. You can follow it in your Bible. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Now, if you know your gospels, you'll know that this is quite a familiar and normal thing. This is the thing that Jesus would do. He would regularly take himself aside and go and pray. And he would go and pray with his disciples. So this kind of moment, Jesus going up a mountain, taking three of his followers with them, that's quite normal. So you might be wondering when you read this kind of thing, what does this have to do, this prayer meeting, if you like, have to do with gazing upon Jesus? But what we've got to know is that this is a prayer meeting with a difference. You know, you think Wednesday evening is going to be great, and it is, see you there. That's our prayer meeting. You think Wednesday evening is going to be good. This was amazing. This, things really kicked off, is how I'll put it. Verse 29, read with me. As he, that is Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. When was the last time you saw lightning? It lights up the whole sky. Imagine what that must have been like. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And just to help us understand, there's three verses here. Let's just notice three things. His clothing, his companions, and his conversation. What happens to Jesus' clothing or his appearance, if you like? He is changed. His face changes in some way. It isn't described here exactly what happens. But his face changes in some way, and then it says his clothes began to shine in a way that I wonder if it was almost too much to look at because it was so bright. So his clothing changes, and then suddenly he's got two friends with him. He's got two companions. Moses and Elijah show up. These are two people from the Old Testament, probably the most famous people in the Old Testament. But not only does he have some companions, they then begin to talk. Just look at verse 31. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And the first thing to say about this is, this must have been an awesome sight. 
This must have been amazing. Jesus had taken his friends as they normally go to do to go and pray and suddenly the glory of the Lord is there. Now, it says that the, those people that came to talk to Jesus, they arrived in glorious splendour but the actual, the glory of it actually comes from Jesus as he is changed and as they see him. It must have been an awesome prayer meeting on a mountain. You could say, in fact, that this prayer meeting on a mountain was the peak of prayer meetings. Look, if you don't like that joke, it's all down here from here. Stop it, stop it. It must have been an awesome sight. It must have been awesome. But there's more than meets the eye here. And the first way we know that is because of the way that Jesus describes what's about to happen. So if you have your Bible, you can look at it. Just go back to verse 27. This is part of the end of uh, what uh, Rory spoke on last week. Jesus is speaking and Jesus said this, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. As in, some of you listening to me right now, you're going to see the kingdom of God before you die. Now that might sound like that Jesus was talking about something at the end of someone's life. But he's actually talking about exactly what Luke records next in his gospel. Because the start of our passage in 28 says, after Jesus had said these things. And what we understand is that Jesus is describing that this moment on this mountaintop, his followers see the kingdom of God. With their own eyes, they witness the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, for Jesus to say that they see the kingdom of God means it isn't just an awesome sight, although it must have been, but they are actually receiving in some way something of a revelation about the rule of God. That's what the kingdom of God is. And we can actually begin to unpack that. What does this kingdom of God mean from, again, those things that happen to Jesus and those people that appear and what they talk about? So that's going to be his clothing, companions and conversations. Because this uh, mountaintop moment uh, in Luke 9 is part of Luke's way of answering a question that actually comes through three times in this chapter. Again, Rory picked up on this last week. But three times in this chapter, the question of who Jesus is gets picked up. So Herod asks, he's a ruler in the nation, verse 9 of chapter 9, who then is this I hear such things about? Jesus asks, verse 18, who do the crowds say I am? And then Jesus asks again in verse 20, who do you say I am? So three times a form of the same question is asked. Who is Jesus? Who is he? What's his identity? And what we can understand is that this moment on the mountaintop, this prayer meeting, this transfiguration is a profound answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Well, the answer is right here. So we're going to go through these things that happen on the mountaintop and ask what they tell us about Jesus. So firstly, let's take Jesus' appearance, shall we? Let's look at verse 29 again. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And the thing to note here is that the change in Jesus' appearance is a confirmation of the title that he has just given himself. What happens to Jesus here is confirms something that he has just said about himself. 
Jesus refers to himself just before this as the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is like a prophetic title used in the Old Testament and again towards the end to describe God's Messiah, God's Saviour. And Jesus uses that title of himself. It's part of his way of saying, I'm the only way to the Father, I'm the way, the truth and the life. All those things that he would say about himself that affirms his identity, part of the way he does it is by saying, I am the Son of Man. But what happens here to his appearance actually confirms that title to be true. Because multiple times in the scriptures we see, or rather we read, people who see visions of the Son of Man in all his glory. So we see this in Revelation, we see this in Ezekiel, we see this in the book of Daniel. And the picture, I'm going to read some of those descriptions for you later, but the Son of Man is one who is clothed in glory, light emanating from him, one who's given been all rule and authority, one who is a truly awesome sight to behold. And just for a moment on this mountaintop, the disciples get to see what prophets had only seen by visions of the Lord. And they see it with their own eyes. It's just for a moment, Jesus' identity as the Son of Man, the one sent by God, is seen by them, even in his appearance as being so bright, so dazzling, so glorious. So his clothing confirms who he is. His appearance does. But also, let's consider his companions. Look at verse 30 again. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. Now, these two men, their appearance also confirms and also tells us something about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who do you say I am? Well, the answer to that is actually found in these two men. So the men that appear are Moses and Elijah. And they are, if you like, they're the unparalleled spokesmen of the Old Testament. And what they do between them is they anticipate and they interpret the life of Jesus, telling us who he is. So firstly, let's take Moses. Moses is the one through whom the law, that's the first five books of the Bible, Moses is the one through whom the law was given. And God's law exposes our sin. The law demands God's just judgment of that sin. And the law lays out for us a means by which that sin can be forgiven. And what the law did, the giving of the law actually did, is anticipated Jesus coming. The law anticipates the coming of God's King, God's Messiah, the one who will pay the price for our sin and reconcile us to God. And what Moses, the appearance of Moses does is actually confirm Jesus' identity as God's Messiah, as God's Saviour, the one who fulfills the law, the one who is greater than, the one who's the true and better Moses. So that's Moses, and then take Elijah. Elijah is, he's a prophet. That means one sent by God to speak on God's behalf. And he's a mighty prophet of God who summons God's people to turn back. And who God tells us in Malachi 4, Elijah was going to come again before the coming of God's Messiah. And the Jews of the day knew this. If God was going to show up, if the Messiah was going to come, well, Elijah was going to come first. So what this moment does is Moses comes and then Elijah comes. He confirms once again who Jesus is. He's the promised Messiah, the one who's the fulfillment of the whole law, the one to whom the law and the prophets point towards. He isn't just another prophet, 
pointing to God. He is the one that, to whom all the prophets have been pointing towards. He is God. So that's Moses and that's Elijah telling us that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's take verse 31. There's one more thing here. Not just his companions, but his conversation. Look at verse 31. What do they talk about? I mean, imagine listening to that conversation. It says they appeared in glorious splendor. I don't know what glorious splendor looks like, but it sounds pretty cool to me. Is it bright lights? Is is the rainbows? I I don't know. But here they are having a chat. And what do they talk about? They spoke about, verse 31, his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. On the mountaintop, Jesus speaks to Moses and Elijah about his departure. And the word for departure in the Greek here is exodus. Now, exodus isn't just a book of the Bible in the Old Testament, again, it is. But it's the name given to the preeminent work of salvation that God did in the Old Testament, where God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, where he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the promised land. So you see, Moses, you know, he had some greatest hits to talk about. You know, they could have spoken about his great work. Didn't you, didn't you do great, Moses, you know? But they don't talk about Moses' exodus that he led. They talk about what Jesus is about to do, his exodus. And again, what this confirms to us is who Jesus is, as in Jesus is the one who is going to lead not just the exodus of the past, but God's great plan of salvation, the great exodus, that doesn't just lead people out of slavery in Egypt, but leads them out of their slavery to sin, to the promised land of heaven. So his clothing, his companions, and his conversation, all these things work together to paint a picture of who Jesus is. And one of the crucial things is, this doesn't just tell us that, you know, what his identity is, but that his identity was coming together with a crucial time in history. Just look at the second half of verse 31. They spoke about his departure, his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. He's about to bring it to fulfillment. And the best way to sum this up, do you remember Rafiki from The Lion King? Yeah? Great character. Love Rafiki. I'm totally nicking this point from Felix, by the way. Felix, wherever you are, thank you so much for letting me steal this point. This is what he said this morning. Do you remember in The Lion King, just before Simba is about to be, um, it's about his time to go and be king, what does Rafiki say to him? It is time. Do you remember that? Should we all say it together on three? No. No? Okay. Forget about it. Um, It is time. It is time. Now's the time. Not only is Jesus God's promised Messiah, not only is he the one to whom all of history points, all the law, all the prophets, they find their fulfillment in Jesus as is revealed on this mountaintop, but it is his time to bring about the great exodus, the great rescue, the great deliverance of God's people from their sin. And it's just if that, all of that wasn't enough, these three things that happened to Jesus that these disciples witness, Jesus' identity is confirmed in an even more significant way. Let's just look at verse 34, shall we? While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. 
as well as all these things that happen to Jesus, what happens to his appearance, who he speaks to, what he speaks to them about. All of that points us to and tells us who he is. And then we have the voice of his heavenly father, God Almighty, saying, this is my son. Now, what does it remind you of when you read that? I'm sure it reminds you of the baptism of Jesus. What happened at Jesus' baptism? The heavens opened. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. And the father says, with you, I'm well pleased. And it's just like that, except this affirmation of Jesus' identity, his mission, who he, who he is, isn't for Jesus' benefit, it's actually for the disciples' benefit. What does God say? What does God the Father say? Through the words we have to point out of Deuteronomy 18. See, the promised Messiah would be one that we were to listen to. God the Father says, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. So all these things add up together to tell us who Jesus is. He's God's Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's gonna lead God's exodus and he's God's chosen son. And just think about, just to use an image, just to think about his glory there. What happens to him? His face changes and his clothes are bright. And one of the images, again, that might pick up, uh, pick up for us is of Moses' face being changed. Again, you can read this in about the Old Testament. When Moses spent time in the presence of the Lord, his face, it says, began to glow. It began to glow so much they actually put something over it to cover it. And here, Jesus begins to glow. But the great difference between someone like Moses and someone like Jesus is that Moses merely reflected the light of God, where Jesus is the light of God. Let me apply it with another image. Moses is like the moon, but Jesus is the sun. Moses merely reflected God's glory that shone on him so brightly it began to change him. But Jesus is the glory of God from whom light emanates. He's the sun and not just the moon. That's some heavy revy, eh? Heavy revy, heavy revelation. Feel free to use it sometime. And what I like about this moment, okay, I hope you can see that as you begin to unpick this, even in just a few verses, isn't there a lot to it? It's so dense with um, pointing us back to and pointing us forward to the rest of the Bible. But there's a very human moment here, which I really like. Just read with me verse 33. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And just in case we didn't get it, look at the end of that line. He did not know what he was saying. No idea. Lord, should we go camping? I think this is a great time for some tents. You stay there, stay there, Moses, Moses, hang on, you just, Elijah, we're going to build some tents for you, we've got these shelters, let's keep this party going. This is a great moment, why would you want, look, don't go, don't go, guys, do you have any wood? Did you bring a tent with you? You didn't bring a tent, fantastic, what are we going to do now? Lord, stay there, but he's no idea what he's talking about, no idea, he didn't know what to do. Would you know what to do? I wouldn't. Faced with the glory of God. Would you know what to do? You see, they'd seen this man, Jesus. They'd eaten with him. They'd have slept, you know, near him. 
that have spoken to him. I've always been fascinated by the idea that Jesus had a sense of humour. He's fully human. You know, this is a man that they knew. And yet they've just seen him with their own eyes be transformed, be transfigured. No idea. Of course, they didn't know what to do in that moment. But see, we know that they began and they eventually worked out the significance of it all. And Peter and John wrote about this encounter. You can read about Peter the way he described this in 2 Peter. And you can read what John says about it. Do you remember this reading from Christmas? John 1, where the word becomes flesh. Let's read it together. John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And there's a very interesting thing here where the word dwelling is the same word that Peter uses for shelter. And it's the word tabernacle. And I hope I explain this clearly. Peter's mistake is thinking, God, you're, Jesus, you're here. We need to put you in a tabernacle. We need to sort of, you're good. Most is, yeah, this is like a hall of fame we've got going here. We need to put you in tabernacles. And what John understood is that Jesus didn't need to be put in a tabernacle. Another word for tabernacle would be temple. You know, in the Old Testament, they would erect a temple to host the glory of God, to host the presence of God. Jesus doesn't need to be put into a temple, into a shelter, into a dwelling place, because he is the dwelling place of the Lord. That was what John understood. That's what Peter misses. This is why verses from Colossians will say things like, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ. God was pleased for his entire being to be in Jesus. This is why we don't have it on the screen, but at the start of Hebrews, I love this verse. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The sun is the radiance of God. He's the exact representation of what God is like. He didn't need to be put into a dwelling place. He is the dwelling place. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, made his dwelling place among us. And what did John write just after that from this encounter they have on this mountaintop? Let's read the next half of verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, this moment on the mountaintop isn't just a moment of information for these disciples. It's a moment of revelation where they see with their own eyes the glory of God. And for a moment, just a brief moment, they see the eternal king of glory. Look at verse 32 with me. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Let me read that again for you. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, what did they see with their own eyes? The glory of God. They saw his glory. I wonder if you've ever had a moment where you've ever seen like the clouds part and the sun just shine onto some scene in front of you. I just spent a week in Cornwall great fun played a lot of golf which is my idea of heaven 
And um, I think given how much I love golf, it's amazing how little I've used golf as illustrations in my sermons. So you're very lucky, because golf is very boring, but I love it. So here we are. There's a great moment on the course, and this is in Perrinporth, it's North Cornwall, and um, a sea mist had rolled in, and the course is set on this very dramatic cliffside where the top of the course actually all slopes down, and it leads to this most beautiful beach and scene. And Dad and I, we were playing together, and we saw this beautiful scene in front of us with this mist, and we thought, wow, that's beautiful. And then 10 minutes later, it all cleared totally, and the sun shone. And we said, wow, that is beautiful. And so it is with Jesus Christ here for these disciples. They've seen Jesus in his beauty in a small way, but just for a second, they see Jesus in his glory. And I want to read for you some of the verses that describe the Son of Man, describe the appearance of Jesus, as people receive visions of Jesus and what he is like from the Old Testament. So this is a vision that Daniel received. High above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. Excuse me, this is Ezekiel. This is Jesus. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This is what Jesus looks like. What is it like to gaze upon Jesus? It's like this. Let me read from another verse from the Old Testament. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Jesus was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is Jesus in all his authority given to him by the Father. Let me read again. This is from Revelation. This is the vision that John has. John, who saw Jesus on the mountaintop, seeing a vision of Jesus later in his life. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, Jesus Christ, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And what does the face of Jesus look like? His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And I wonder if we ever are just tempted, or what we slip into is a vision of Jesus that's a bit too familiar, that's a bit too humble, that's a bit too normal. And we fail to lose, we, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is glorious, that he is the radiance of his Father, and that if we were to be face to face with him in all his glory in the ways that he's described here, we would fall on our faces in awe and wonder, confessing our own sin 
and worshipping him because he is the glory of God. He's so, so glorious. And sometimes maybe we do it at church. Maybe it's happened tonight. The Lord's been on my case about this recently. Sometimes I just rock up to church or I did it with David's tent where I went to and I found myself in a time of worship. Just, I was holding a coffee in one hand. I was sort of looking around and I just felt a little check. I was like, here I am in the presence of God, distracted, thinking about something else, not taking him seriously because he's glorious. Maybe we're tempted to do it with our lives. Jesus is awesome. In a sense, he's terrifying. It must have been terrifying to see Jesus on the mountaintop of the transfiguration. It must have been terrifying. That's why Peter didn't know what to do. And yet we lose sight of the fear of God, don't we? And we live a life where we basically think we can do what we want and God won't mind and while there's grace and I can sort of crack on. And we lose sight of the fact that every day we have is a gift from him. And everything we should do should be for his glory, the one who is so glorious, the one who is so, so worthy. And see, in my life, I've realised that I really like that song, Isn't He? Isn't He Beautiful? Isn't He? I really like it now. And I've actually realised that for the rest of my life, what I want to do in my ministry, whether I'm in Bristol or Clapham, or wherever, is I want to be a worship leader for Jesus Christ. As a vicar. That's the main thing I want to do. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he majestic? Isn't he kind? Isn't he faithful? Isn't he good? This is Jesus. And I want to spend the rest of my life telling people about him. And I want to do it in my work, and I want to do it with my personal life. I want to be the kind of person who people look at and go, wow, there's something on him. That's because I'm pursuing holiness. That's because the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Not because of good things I've done, just because of the sheer grace of God. And I want to encourage you tonight to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus again. And to do it in your life. Get alone with the Lord and get with his word and just read the start of Revelation and meditate in your mind upon the beauty and glory of Jesus. Do you remember the verses from Revelation where John looks and he sees a lamb looking as if it's been slain and then there are the angels there and they're worshipping him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Fill your mind with this so that when you come into worship, you're not like me as I can be sometimes, which is just way too casual but instead we have a right fear of the Lord. But also I want to encourage you tonight as we come to take communion, to gaze upon the glory of God. See the, the amazing, the paradox of the gospel, if you like, or the, the, the thing that might wrongfoot us is that this one who's so glorious, you see all those descriptions I gave, can you see the beauty of Jesus? The one who is glorious in himself exchanged all of that for the cross. The one who is so in himself, he is light, he is brilliant, he is dazzling. Exchange that for the darkness of a cross outside Jerusalem. Because the glory of God is actually revealed on the cross as Jesus, the one who's the promised Messiah of God, gave his life for us. Where the one who is himself so holy took upon himself our sin and died in our place. And maybe sometimes I read these passages about, you know, what Jesus looks like. That can all seem a bit too much. And in some ways it totally is. 
But what we're invited to do tonight as we take communion is to look upon the one who even though in himself his body is brilliant and it's glorified now and it's beautiful, whose body was broken for you and whose blood was shed for you, who revealed his glory as he gave up his last breath for your salvation. And what I want to do just now, just before we take communion, I just want to read a final passage of scripture. So let me just invite you to close your eyes as I read about Jesus Christ. Jesus, we worship you tonight and we bless you. And we confess that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Jesus Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen.